Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And uh, we're going to start out um, this this day, this section, whatever we call Ep- episode, it. Episode, usually. Episode, <laughs> that's it. Uh, with um, Yaniv Cohen. Well, it's all spicy. Yeah. You forget the theme. The theme is spicy, spicy, Spice. spicy. And the f- well, flavor, too. F- first up, un- unusually, this, this, this chef is from a part of the world you don't necessarily associate with spicy food, but he sure wrote a great book about how to spice up your food. So let's hear it from... Yanif Cohen. Everyone seems excited about spices these days, I think partially because it makes a difference in all the food and our palates are more adventurous. Um, and, And also now they've discovered all kinds of medicinal qualities, which in fact is not new, it takes, as you point out in your book, um, from millenniums back. Anyhow, you, I'm talking to you, is Yonif Cohen, and his book is My Spiced Kitchen, a Middle Eastern cookbook. And um, you can explain your background quickly, because that explains where you're coming from. Yes, absolutely. So... Uh, a little bit about my background. So I was born in Israel, but my parents migrated to Israel from Iraq and Tunisia, which is in North Africa. So uh, they, like many other people uh, who moved to Israel, brought their own culture, their cuisine, their spices, and their own traditions um, into this new melting pot that was now Israel. So growing up, um, you know, in a Jewish family, um, first and foremost, we have uh, Shabbat. Every Friday was, a, you know, it's a very ritual dinner. And you have a few courses, and everybody's, you know, a little bit showing up and showing their, you know, I would say colors and flavors. And uh, so coming from this Middle Eastern background, the spices were front and center. Now, having my whole family, my mom, my grandmothers, uh, my aunts, and also our neighbors who came from, you know, Morocco or Libya or Lebanon or Syria, um, you know, Turkey, Greece, they all brought their own spices and their own uh, type of cuisine. So you get exposed to a lot of it, and you get exposed to all the flavor of spices. You know, we, we every home has a, a, one of the sections in the kitchen dedicated to spices. Yeah, well, you so said growing unusual when you told me that all the women in your family keep the spices in the refrigerator. I never heard of that. Yeah, so some of it would be in the refrigerator or freezer. Some of it will be in the cupboard. Um, it depends on the spice. Depends. And so what they would do, they would take it out of the freezer, put it in a little container for the everyday use. But, you know, we would go to the market and buy a lot of spices, you know, like by the kilos. So you don't want the whole thing to sit in there in the kitchen in the heat. Um, so you would have a bag in the freezer, which will keep it, you know, obviously in the dark, obviously very cold, and it will preserve um, the flavor. Even coffee, even ground coffee yeah. would go in the freezer. I used to so, do that, and then I read where it makes coffee beans bitter. Yeah, yeah, believe it or not, I mean, freezer is an, an, an amazing invention, how it keeps uh, flavors, and obviously, you know, meat and fish and, you know, vegetables that are frozen, but it also keeps spices and coffees, anything that's grounded, and it prolongs its life, and it preserves its aromas. So, that's my background, I just grew up in the kitchen, I said to my friend that I... I had turmeric in my mother's milk when when I was a baby because. By the way, that's my favorite of all things. I really swear by turmeric. So I know it's amazing. It's amazing. I like, I you know the root, the fresh root. Oh, the fresh fruit. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I, not only I cook with turmeric, I also take turmeric supplements um, oh, yeah. because I think it's um, I think it's such a great. Spice is such a gift from nature. Well, you you have the story about how you cut your hand and you use turmeric to to staunch the bleeding. (laughs) 
Yes. You know, you know, at the time, you don't think about it as a kid, that uh, turmeric can actually, you know, disinfect good turmeric powder and, and help your body um, stop bleeding. But, you know, years later, when I realized my passion for spices, I sometimes think that that part of it was that magic that happened that day. You know, it's kind of stays in your subconscious, and you don't think about it. But then you're like, oh, my God, this is what happened. And, you know, I, I, I kind of, for, like I said, it's in the subconscious. You don't think about it on, the, on like, on a, on a regular, you know, every day. Yeah. And then when I realized how passionate I am about spices, it all came back to me, you know. And you so, a spice detective. <laughs> yes. And yeah. the reason, the reason I, I, I came up with that name is because once I moved to the U.S., I realized that a lot of my American friends are not using spices, are not aware of the power of spices. You know, starting, you know, just with the flavors and the aroma and what it does to the food and how food can be beautifully spiced. And forget about the medicinal properties, but just flavor-wise and kitchen-wise, I eventually I made it my mission to introduce more American friends and audiences to the wonderful world of spices. And I feel like people are intimidated. So part of the reason we I, I started the blog and the and the YouTube channel and this book that just came out is to make spices less intimidating, so people can explore and and they can experiment with spices and feel more comfortable. You know, starting with little spices and then mixing spices and then just you know here and there. And by doing so, they're 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 expanding their palate and their they're adding a lot of flavor, aroma, and health to their diets. Yeah, now, you, you organized this book according to the individual spices, um, and you, you give a little introduction to mm-hmm. the spice. Um, for example, the first one is allspice. Talk about that, and then you give recipes using that spice. Um, exactly. But I have a question. Isn't allspice two different spices? Old Spice um, is one spice, and the reason it was named Old Spice is because when the the first Europeans, when they encountered that new spice in the New World, um, it resembled a lot of different spices. So they couldn't put a, a, a figure, or they couldn't put their finger on what those savory uh, seeds reminded them of. You know, they have... Um, um, yep a little bit of cinnamon, a little bit of, of, of clove, and a little bit of nutmeg and peppercorn. Yeah, now, do you and have the, nutmeg in here? In the, in, the, in the book? Yeah. No. I didn't No, I don't know. I, I specifically, um, this book was dedicated mostly to more Middle Eastern right, Mediterranean spices. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we haven't uh, cooked with nutmeg so much. Right. So I didn't include it in this specific book. But um, that makes it also a wonderful spice. I have nothing against it. Yeah, well, your recipes are very interesting, too. Um, they're, I mean, it's a handbook for how you can use all these spices, certainly. Uh, and mm-hmm. the histories are so interesting, like the, the history absolutely. of cloves. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, yeah, there's a lot we don't know about spices, but, you know, I feel like... In the past, spices were very uh, rare, you know, especially for the Europeans when they when they traveled to India and the Far East, and then they, when they found the New World, all those exotic spices became very um, sought after and became very expensive very and very exclusive. And um, you know, saffron you know, has always been the most expensive. But didn't you say that clove is the third? Which one's the third most expensive? Uh, today or in general? Traditionally, histor- historically. Uh, well, there was the saffron, which was always very expensive. Yeah. Cardamom, very Cardamom, expensive. Yes. Um, and clove. Now you you mentioned the cardamom has different um, different. Colors and I never understood what the difference was between 
the green and the the, the other colors? They're, they're very similar in their flavor. It's just a different variation. It's like you have a few types of apples and, you know, um, you'll find similar varieties within the same family of, of plants. Um, but the, the flavor profile is similar. Now let's pop back to saffron for a second because saffron is found growing in, in many parts of Europe. I didn't, don't associate it so much with what you might call the Spice Islands. No, he didn't include that. There. Oh, he didn't include no, it. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, no. I see. Okay. No, no, that was I just oh. mentioned. It okay, dumb, dumb me. Yeah, I mean, but he has zatar, which is one of my. Uh, both of ours, uh, we both cook, and zatar is wonderful, especially with lamb. Now I got, con- I got, I got confused. Thing, the, go ahead, I'm sorry. I got confused about zatar from a couple of our guests. Yeah. Because it seemed like some people talk about zatar as being like a, a single spice, right. so, sort of like sumac. Well, well, the truth. Okay, so zatar is a mix, but okay, but okay. Here comes, the, here comes the, the real pure news. form of zatar is actually just one herb. Ah, okay. What what makes it a sort of spice mix is most people would add a little bit of salt and sesame. Now, some families or some tradition will also add some sumac into it. Personally, I prefer the zatar um, clean to the um, the, isop, the it's called isop isop uh, herb. It's from the family of oregano and thyme. And I don't mind this a little bit of the toasted sesame and a little bit of salt, obviously, because you always have to use some salt. Um, but the that's why it's a mix. But there's there's one herb that actually grows wild in the Middle East, which is called zatar. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, thank yeah, you so much. We've never had that. Then. Thank, thank you for explaining that, because I was I was confused. I thought somebody was lying to me. <laughs> no, no. It turns out, turns no, out, I mean, you know, turns out they yeah. were both right. Yeah, everybody's right. At the end of the day, you use uh, that you popcorn. It. I thought that was interesting. With oh, coconut. it's delicious. Is that Middle Eastern coconut popcorn with zatar? Well, the co- the, the reason I use the coconut it's um. Just because it's an, it's um it's a it's kind of like gives it a little more. It's not really Middle Eastern, but we do use coconut. Um, we make a lot of uh, desserts with coconut, a lot of cookies, um, macaroons. My grandma used to make that was um, and a lot of other desserts we make with coconut. But um, the reason for this one specifically was the the ease of use of the oil, the uh, the higher uh, burning point, and also it adds a little extra layer of flavor. And the mixture between that and the zatar and the popcorn is uh, just something that I love to do, and it's always surprises, uh, surprising to my guests, and I wanted to share it with the readers. But you can do the same thing with any other oil you like to use, and also with other spices. You can do a sumac, you can do baharat popcorn. Um, yeah, Thomas you know, Keller uses, uh, what does he use? He uses truffle, truffle popcorn. Truffle Oh, yeah. That's good. Very, very nice. <laughs> you remember when we were interviewing another Israeli chef, I think, and we, and we found the recipe for chicken soup, which was called Yemeni chicken oh, soup. Oh, Yemeni chicken soup. And, we started yeah. making that. And, and guess, guess what the funny ingredient was in sesame the, chicken soup. It's, it's, a, it's a spice mix. We call it Hawaiiich. Well, he, he, was, he was using turmeric. Turmeric. Well, turmeric, yeah, turmeric, my mom is always in the soup. But the Yemenite soup, what makes it different, it's the, 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 the spice mix has cardamom and turmeric and a little bit of clove, and it very, it's very, very aromatic. So the Hawaiian spice mix, um, you know, has cumin and cardamom and, 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 and clove, and, it just creates this aroma that is very intoxicating. So, so, so good. Now, I want to know why you included anise but not fennel seeds. You even fennel have seeds? anise with fennel, but you don't have fennel seeds. Can you repeat that? Yeah, you you have anise, but yeah. but you you don't have fennel seeds, 
you even have anise roasted fennel, but no right. fennel seeds. I mean, I always thought they were slightly different. A little bit different, a little bit different. But I, I, I you know, I always call them anise uh, because we never use something that's called fennel seeds. Um, but you know, it might, it might be that they're the same. Um, or yeah, well, yeah, we grow. Well, it, well, so, the, yeah, I mean, so I. I, I a federal plant, you get first off the fronds, and then you get um, the um, um, pollen, and then you get the seeds. It's super, super, super similar in flavor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, I think. But, but it's is... funny, like I said, we use the anise, but I, I, I never used, um, again, growing up in Israel, the fennel seeds. Uh-huh. Which yeah, is very interesting. Know. It's very interesting. I guess it's where availability, you know, between the different regions. Well, you also, you have uh, people, listeners, um, interesting, such as recipes, such as watermelon, feta, nigella, and sumac summer uh-huh. salad. Now, that sounds unusual. Yeah. Well, the nigella seeds are, first of all, they're very, very healthy. Extremely healthy, and, and you know, it's. Um, I would recommend anybody have a little bit if they can find or, or organic um, nigella seed oil as a supplement mm. because it's a very potent um, anti-inflammatory and uh, it's very high in antioxidants. Hmm. So well, all most of these things are. I mean, the, 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 you, you name it, and, and they're going to help you do it. Lower your blood pressure, reduce yeah. inflammation, um, mm-hmm. stimulate your uh, uh, your gut biome, and just about everything. <laughs> so, Listen, it was good for Cleopatra. It's good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so, so um, the the other reason. Um, that I use the nigella seed on that salad is because of the contrast of, of color, and it adds this um, an extra layer of garnish to the salad and an extra layer of flavor, of course. But when you put it on the salad, it's not as the flavor is not as potent. But when you look at the salad, it gives it an extra layer of garnish, which yeah. is very important to me as well. Well, just just to show you that I've been influenced by you. Even even though we hadn't met tonight, tonight's dinner around here is cod with potatoes and the potatoes seasoned with and fenugreek. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's, that's fantastic. That makes me happy. You know, whenever I get a message from people saying, "Oh, we start using turmeric or we start using tartar," and I wasn't, I didn't know what sumac was, and I start using it, that is really. Um, it gives me a lot of pleasure and satisfaction because it's um, it's so nice to to be, to have such a positive effect on people's um, you know diets, palate, dishes, cuisine. It's really really nice to hear. So thank you for that. Well, let's let's, let, let's end it on a high note. In in my in my pantry, there are not one but two jars of turmeric. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you. Thank Beautiful. you so much for joining us today. Yeah. And, Thank, uh, thank, thank you, you for the great work you're again, doing. Again, the book is My Spiced Kitchen, a My Middle Eastern cookbook. Thank you. Thank you so much. So when you get your copy of this book, you're going to have some fun. <laughs> yeah? No no question about that. And uh, we, we, I think we're still going to be spicy after the next break, too. Yep. Right? So let's get a break in, and then we'll be right back. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to substitute um, flavor and for this next uh, segment, um, Raquel Pelzel is describing how you can get that oomph from, of the fifth flavor in her book, Umami Bomb. And boy, if you wondered why you crave certain kinds of foods, it's the secret is the umami. 
and, and not the bomb. It's taken a little while now for everybody to understand uh, the fifth taste, umami, and, and how you get it. But uh, Raquel Pozel has written a whole book about it called Umami Balm. And uh, boy, isn't it? And, and you're going to find that there are things in here that you loved, but you didn't know why. And she's going to tell you that. Or you're going to find out things that you haven't been eating enough of. And if you want to go more vegetable forward or vegetarian in your diet, a little of this or a little of that's going to make a big difference. Raquel, welcomed on the menu. Um, it, it's a, it's a really interesting opening of a vista. For me, it was anyhow, this book. Um, it's making everything that you put in your plate more exciting. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's, when was it the, um, when that Japanese researcher identified umami, wasn't that long ago, was it? No, no, it was. I think it was in the 18. I don't remember the exact the exact date. But I think it was in the early 1900s. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he discovered the the fifth taste of delicious. Um, you know that kind of certain something that makes everything taste round and bold and um, you know just just overwhelmingly good. I think 1908. That's when. That's when it was officially coined, um, and you know you can find umami and all kinds of ingredients, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, um, you've built your book around eight, I think, uh, eight specific ingredients that are um, umami bombs, and then you have a bonus chapter on fish, which you could explain to us later. Let's uh, go through some of these. Uh, the the some are not surprised. I mean, I think by now everybody figures out that mushrooms are, right. are umami. But uh, like I said to you, I finally figured out why in Italian cooking, parmesan or pomerage or something like that's on every dish. <laughs> I know, right? Because it makes yeah. everything so good. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, umami um, can be found in, in lots of different ingredients. And, you know, umami occurs when an ingredient is fermented or roasted or aged. Um, it's kind of what happens when the proteins begin to break down and certain ingredients um, tend to have a lot of the compounds that create umami, which is um, glutamate, which is the most well-known one. Um, but there's also something called guanolate, and they're both found in lots of different vegetables and, and animal fat-free items. But um, I divided every chapter in the book to focus on a different umami ingredient because, you know, I don't know about you, but I hate when I go out to the store to buy something special and then you never use it in another recipe. Oh, <laughs> so yes. I figured, yeah, someone's going to be, you know, focusing on umami and, you know, Parmigiano-Reggiano, you know, here's here's a whole bunch of recipes that you can use that grated parm for um, without worrying about buying it for just one recipe and then having it sit around. And the other ingredients that I use quite a lot of is soy sauce. Yeah, and, sure. And I love to find that you had a marinade of red wine and um, and uh, what was it? Tomorrow, that's my favorite. You sort of like it too, don't you? Soy sauce. Yeah, yeah. Soy sauce is um, a really interesting umami ingredient because, you know, you don't necessarily taste the soy sauce in whatever you're adding it to. It just creates another dimension and of a flavor and it creates more depth so you know i have a chocolate cake in this book and i use soy sauce i use a little bit of soy sauce in the frosting in the chocolate frosting and it kind of blows people away like what what are you doing but it just gives it that sweet saltiness and a little bit of roundness kind of like if you taste sometimes you get a cookie from a bakery and and it tastes flat like it tastes fine but just tastes a little flat and it's probably because they didn't use enough salt in the cookie dough um and and the soy sauce is similar it's a salty ingredient it's not as salty as salt um so you know it's the recipes in the book that call for soy sauce as new mommy ingredient do you have a more modest amount of added salt in them but um it also doesn't come through with a particularly strong flavor so say in the marinara sauce which you know, calls for tomatoes, which are naturally rich in umami as well, um, and then you add the soy to it, it gives it just a little roundness, a little boldness, a little extra, and it makes it 
it gives it that flavor where it's like, oh, this is really good. And you, you can't say, oh, there's soy sauce in this, but there's something special yes. and something that's unique about it. And I think you, know, you just add a splash of it and it goes a really, really long way. The, the thing I always brings a smile to my face about soy sauce is the, is the fact that we, we interviewed someone who actually is involved in the company that makes soy sauce in Richmond, Virginia. <laughs> oh, how cool. That's so neat. Yeah. Yeah, there's so many different varieties of soy yeah. sauce you can buy well, now. I can't from. remember what we've been using. We, I, I now understand why they have a, a, a vegetarian and gluten-free mm-hmm. type of it. It's it's a yeah, tamari and it's it's what do you remember the yeah, name? Yeah, there's tamari and there's shoyu. Shoyu, um, both yeah, yeah. Well, but, well, both of those. Is that tamari is the wheat free one? Oh, it's like um, Sanyo or something like that. That's I can't it. recall. I know the label. I know. Okay. I know it well. Yeah, yeah. It's and when you get great soy sauce, like you can spend a lot of money on soy sauce and have it, you know, almost like balsamic vinegar. It can be aged and you know be very carefully. Um, very carefully bottled, um, and it tastes just a world apart from the traditional soy sauce you might buy oh, off yeah. the shelf at a grocery exactly. store. Well, now, there they you have the ultimate umami, right? Balsamic, oh, so balsamico. Balsamic's delicious. You know, I didn't really focus on vinegars, but it is very aged, yeah, and it does, once it concentrates, it it does create a nice umami effect. We have We have a little 25-year-old... Bottle of jar, yeah, whatever you call it. It's $125 and it comes yeah. with an eyedropper. I know. Lives, I had a bottle of balsamic and my husband, my ex-husband went to grab it out of the cupboard. Now my ex-husband because he broke the balsamic <laughs> <laughs> and the whole thing toppled and shattered and I was like, no, oh, not shit. the balsamic. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, terrible that is. Oh dear. Well, I mean, I, I'm not a baker so it's, it was my go-to dessert. There is, um, with ice cream with that on top oh, of it. Oh, sure. It's yeah, delicious. It's yeah. So, and, and the other thing is I'm, I'm mad for tomatoes. They're, of course, in oh, seventh okay. heaven right now. Oh, um, the time, yeah. But I, I never thought of them as being mommy. Yeah, yeah. Tomatoes have lots of uh, natural glutamate in them. And when they're roasted or dried, you know, it's all concentrated, all that flavor. Um, there's so much, you know, so much savoriness from tomato. Like think of tomato soup, you know, and how delicious it is. And even, you know, I make vegan tomato soup all the time, and it's it's so savory and rich, and it's all from the tomatoes. How about fried? How about fried green tomatoes? You know, I don't think green tomatoes have as much of the guanoline no, so. or the glutamate. I'm not. I mean, I don't know the the chemical breakdown of it exactly, but. Um, but they taste a little more vegetal to me, and perhaps because they're not as ripe, and, and maybe those um, proteins they haven't had a chance to develop yet in the tomato. Tell us about your tomato uh, andouja. Oh, the andouja. That's a funny story. So, um, you know, so there's the, some people pronounce it andouja. I had a big conversation with my editor about this. Like, are we going to call it andouja or andouja? Um, and it's pronounced both ways. But it's a, traditionally it's almost like a pepperoni paste that comes from uh, Calabria. And you spread it. You can spread it on bread. You can add it to a pasta sauce. You can put it on a pizza. And it has so much umami. There's garlic and paprika. And, you know, think of pepperoni in spreadable form. Like yes. it's just kind of, you know, crazy. Well, I was looking for a way to do something similar with um, a vegetarian based um, based paste and so I started experimenting with all of these different ingredients and um, I discovered that the secret was in olives which is really curious um, and and of course in in tomatoes and um, I came up with this paste that is so savory and meaty tasting that my partner who is vegan he refused <laughs> to eat it <laughs> he said I can't I, I can't even go near this because it tastes too meaty <laughs> and you just make it in the food processor and you can keep it in your fridge or your freezer and you can use it as a flavor bomb as an umami bomb you can stir it into a sauce like a pasta sauce you can stir it into pasta just with olive oil and garlic 
you could spread it on toast, um, you know, for something savory for breakfast or a piece of grilled toast even. Um, it could put it on a sandwich. I mean, it just, it, you know, that with on a cheese sandwich or on a grilled cheese, and it's like, forget it. It's so good. <laughs> no, the, the, uh, we use instead for, for looking for that same kind of flavor the Korean chili paste. Oh, the gojujang. Mm. Gojujang. Yeah. It's very, it's very, it's very similar. And we just, yeah. and we just got tomato at, what's it, what's it called? Achar. Achar. Indian. Oh, yes, yes, that's so good, that sauce. Yeah. From, from, Delicious. From Brooklyn Deli. Yes, yes, sure, it's, it's why I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, you so live good. in Brooklyn, right? I do, yeah, yeah, I do live in Brooklyn. So do you know that wonderful woman, the, the, the chef who has that, uh, that line of products in Brooklyn. We've met once. Yeah, 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 we met once. She's great. And she is. She's wonderful. Chef and that achar is delicious. Yes. Um, so, no, mushrooms. I mean, it doesn't even matter. I mean, everybody thinks of, uh, for meat substitutes, they think of the portobellos. Right. But, um, of course, you know, P- Portobello mushrooms was the greatest PR success ever, except for, yeah, well, you know, because they're just overgrown button mushrooms. Right, there's, yeah, there's big cremini mushrooms, right, yeah. completely. Oh, you just, you just reminded me of something. What? You remember how much I like blue cheese on cremini, on, uh, on mushrooms? Mm. I used to make them all the time. <laughs> and, we, and we have that fabulous blue cheese that we just got. Car Valley. From Car Valley oh, in Wisconsin. Yeah. And I, you, you just, you roast, you roast the, the, uh, mushrooms upside down. Oh, that's yeah. right. I used to make those portobellos there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah. So the all the cheese. juices stay in them, sure. And I served it with uh, some kind of salmon mousse or something, right? You did. Mm. You did. You did one time. Yeah. It's a that lot of work. Tasty. <laughs> so, sounds like sounds like too much of mommy to me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you know, we're in the mushrooms now, but I just wanted to know, um, drop back a little bit. Is is it true about arthritis and nightshade plants? Oh, um, you know, that's really, it's interesting you bring that up. It, it's, some people who have arthritis find nightshades to be very inflammatory, um, meaning nightshades meaning eggplant, pepper, tomatoes. Tomatoes, right. Um, but some I people, love. yeah, some people don't. So it, it really depends on what your triggers are and the best way to discover that. And if you think that tomatoes or peppers or eggplant might be um, causing inflammation, the best thing to do is cut them out of your diet for um, a month and then eat some eat a bowl of tomato soup and see what happens. You know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're affected the next day, then you kind of know. Um, you know, a lot of people like to do these fasts now where you take um, everything out. Oh, like yeah, right. Yeah. All the triggers out, which would be dairy, alcohol, sugar, wheat flour. Yeah. Um, and then if you think that nightshades are contributing, you could take that out too. And then, you know, you go without for about a month and then, you introduce something with flour and see if that affects you, and then maybe the next yeah. week you you know you, you do that's one what by they one. do. These allergy specialists, doctors sure, do right. that because I've had a cousin go through it a couple of times. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't seem to be working for her. I don't know. <laughs> so, but anyhow, you have so many good mushroom uh, recipes, I and mean, I don't oh, know how you, you could go wrong with any of them. <laughs> Really? Yeah, they're tasty. They're tasty. You know, mushrooms. It's so funny. Mushrooms are such a great meat substitute for vegetarians and vegans. But my son, who today is his birthday, he just turned ten. Oh, um, well, I have a ten-year-old yeah, grandson. Oh, yeah. He's he's been a vegetarian for um, I think three years now, and he won't go near mushrooms. He hates them. My granddaughter won't eat them either. Yeah, I you think, know, I don't know if there's texture or what. Uh, you know, when we were once. I think I read an article that there are certain things in in your body that mm-hmm. would affect your taste. So mm-hmm. that it's like the the thing with the cilantro. There's some people right, who right. cannot get oh, past soapy. the soapy. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, uh, Sarah Moulton uh, had the same experience with beets that were too. They oh. tasted like dirt. Right, right. And there are people who can't eat beets. So, huh. yeah, and I wonder if there's something about mushrooms. Maybe there's something with mushrooms. Yeah, he hates mushrooms and won't go near olives. So he would not be into the India. <laughs> no, no. 
No, I mean olives. I kind of think are acquired taste. I love right? olives. I, mean, I do you know. too. <laughs> yeah, but I, I eat everything. So well, now we just. We but you know what's co- interesting is I tried to sneak in the. There's a. I have a mushroom recipe, and I toss them with like falafel spices, and then I dress them with this miso tahini dressing. So they don't really taste mushroomy. They almost taste like falafel, and I put it uh, in a pita. Yes, and that. I couldn't. I couldn't get it past them. He even. He even was like, "Is this mushroom?" He knew. He knew. <laughs> you, you should try him. Try him on the product we just got, which is mushroom jerky. Jerky. Mm, oh, interesting. Yeah. I wonder, yeah, because that would be interesting to see because then I would know whether it's the texture or the flavor because mushroom jerky won't at all be anywhere near a sautéed mushroom texture-wise. Oh, right, no. right, right. I can't remember who makes them, but I'm sure there aren't many oh, mushroom jerkies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have trouble finding it, drop us an email and we'll tell you, but I'm sure, I'm sure that Search of the Web will, will bring it up really quickly. Well, the the other thing I was thinking of is um, I've gone way off cauliflower, but you have a very attractive recipe in this book, and you have an attractive recipe for sheet pan cauliflower with crispy onions and caper parsley vinaigrette. So how yeah. could that not taste good, huh? Yeah, I love hard roasting cauliflower, meaning... Um, you know, usually I preheat the sheet pan and then I throw the cauliflower on it and it goes in the oven and you, you do it at a high temperature and just the cauliflower caramelizes and turns brown and it, it goes from being hard and cruciferous to being just like butter tender. It's see, just, I don't know. You know. I've never got that result. Maybe I should try your recipe to see. Yeah, try it. Try it. And you could even try it without the vinaigrette, you know, if you want to just do it with crispy onions. I mean, I roast vegetables like that all the time. Yeah, and, what is um, it? You wrote a whole book on sheet pans. I did. I did. Wait, I don't understand. Why is that different from, like, ordinary roasting? You know, it's, I think, well, it's, the, the pan itself is more shallow, right? And it's not as thick of a, a gauge metal, so it's thinner. So your, your, whatever you're putting on the sheet pan will cook faster. It'll brown faster, and you're exposing more of the surface area to the heat in the oven. So you'll get more surface area uh, browned without having to toss things around on the sheet pan to stir. Now, you do want to stir it midway through because, of course, whatever's face down on the sheet pan will become brown, and you want to flip that over. Um, but it's just, it's you know, you can roast broccoli. If you preheat your sheet pan with your oven, you can have roasted broccoli and cauliflower in under 20 minutes. Um which I do all the time. Like, you know, I'm, I'm on my way home and from work or something, and I call my son, and I tell him to turn the oven on and throw a sheet pan in the oven, and so when I get home, <laughs> I can have it ready to go. <laughs> and it sounds like a skillet. When you add stuff to it, it sizzles, it's hot, um, it gets it all going. Well, I'll try it. So, yeah. anyhow, you also have miso, which is good for you. Smoking anything is terrific. Yes. And nutritional Yeast, which um, I really don't think I've ever even tried using. So um, Peter's on note to to get me nutritional yeast at Whole Foods. <laughs> buy some, buy some, and you will be pleasantly surprised. Now, just as you said that portobello mushrooms had like a great PR program, well, nutritional yeast needs to borrow the portobello mushroom people because yeah, it's <laughs> because bad, it has a bad rep. It sounds so unsexy. Nutritional yeast sounds like the most unsexy thing you could potentially eat. <laughs> but it's so good. It it's like kind of tastes cheesy. Um, I put it on my popcorn all the time. Yeah, you said um, that. That's so sounds, delicious. I love and, everything to go on popcorn. That's great. Oh yeah. It's fantastic. And I use it in the umami sauce. I use it in a no queso queso. So it's a, you know, like queso, that um, delicious cheese dip you can get in Mexican restaurants or Tex-Mex restaurants. Um, I make it with some squash for color and cashews. And then I put some nutritional yeast in it. And for vegetarians and vegans, nutritional yeast is a great source of protein and, um, and, uh, oh my gosh, I just lost the word. It's a great, it's a great source for protein and, um, Oh, it's a compl- an amino acids, amino acids. Mm-hmm. So it's um, you know it comes in a shaker or you can buy it in the bulk bin in a bag. Um, and I put it, I use a, I make a dairy free pesto with the nutritional yeast and kale. So it's always like superpower pesto. Um, I put it in my veggie meatballs that I make with eggplant. Um, it's really versatile. And once you start cooking with it, you really begin to cook more with it because it's actually quite delicious. Well, I thank you for uh, 
telling me that I should get it because I'm I'm going to definitely start using it. Yes, start with popcorn. Start with popcorn and work your way up to meatballs. (laughs) (laughs) And and above all, everybody, you can learn how to sauce everything up uh, with your mommy with the the uh, balm sauce. Yes, and and I want that cover. Um, sandwich. <laughs> yeah, that sandwich is like ridiculous. So good. Oh, it looks wonderful. Well, Raquel, it's, I think it's a really successful concept. It's, you know, it, it doesn't just talk about umami. It really has, it's loaded with creative tips on, on um, recipes and, and different ingredients. And oh, it's, it's going to make vegetable forward much more interesting. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I hope. I hope that, you know, if people start adding some of these umami ingredients to their vegetables, their vegetables will taste that much better, and then they'll eat them so much more. And, you know, instead of meatless Mondays, there can be meat Mondays, and then six days of the week can be meatless, and that's better for our health, and it's good for the environment, and uh, it's a good exercise in creativity. (laughs) Exactly. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up, um, an admission for me is... I really am afraid to bake. I mean, I don't know enough about it, and I always have those incredible flops like that that horrible strawberry pie I made <laughs> where I ended up stewing the strawberry. You finished up? Finish up? Almost. With soggy crust and stewed strawberry. You, you almost destroyed a beautiful friendship. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's a story we've told many times before, yeah. and I guess we'll bother, we'll bother with you. With it again another time. Yeah, well, we're we're going to direct you if you have the same kind of hesitancy that I have about baking to Gemma Stafford, who introduces a fearless approach to baking anytime, anywhere. And the title of this book is "Bigger, Bolder Baking." Give, gives you an idea where the spicy bit comes in, right? I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's right. That's 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 the story. Bigger bowl of bread. Baking. Bigger baking. bowl of baking. We also always welcome a guest, an author, an Irish chef, because we just love Ireland. We love all the Irish chefs we know, actually. And here we have one we're just meeting, Jebba Stafford. Welcomed on the menu, Jenna. Jebba. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, and your book is called Bigger, Bolder Baking. Um, the book is called Bigger, Bolder Baking, yep. And that's the name of your, um, originally a blog and now a uh, an, an, an internet, uh, not an internet, a TV series? So it's, um, it's the name of our YouTube channel and also our website, biggerbolderbaking.com. Right. So, so my first book, yeah, so for my first book, we knew that we had to, to continue on and make a bigger, bolder baking cookbook. Right. And now your husband, you, you live in California now, and uh, your husband has been uh, in um, entertaining forever. And so you just decided to combine forces here and talents, and you, you acquired all these recipes, and you wanted and ideas and, and tips, and you wanted to share them. And... Uh, you seem to be born a born teacher at heart here, so you combined into introducing this concept of bigger, bolder baking, and he produced the shows, right? Yeah, so we produce everything in our kitchen in Santa Monica. Just to um, just to give everybody a bit of a background on me, I'm a professionally trained chef. I'm obviously from Ireland. I uh, I trained in uh, Cold Brewer Street. I studied professional cookery, and then I went to Ballymaloo Cookery School. So I've been working as a professional chef in in bakeries and, and Mission Star kitchens for ten plus years. Um, my husband also, like you mentioned, has an extensive career in entertainment, working with Lucasfilm and and Disney. So uh, we joined forces forces, and we came up. We wanted to do stick with entertainment and combine my passion for food 
So uh, Bigger Boulder Baking was born uh, just six years ago in our kitchen in Santa Monica. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah, now, um, I, I got a list of talking points from your publicist. I always love those. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it starts out with the first recommended question is, what is Bigger Boulder Baking? Well, I think maybe we just got an answer <laughs> to that question, right? It's, it's, well, it goes on. It among, says, among, how can listeners fearlessly bake anytime and anywhere? Yeah, so, uh, well, I, you know, I'm not privy to those questions. <laughs> so, no, I but I've seen, I've seen it. Oh, no, I, I, I have, um, yeah. No, but you know what? It, it, all, it all makes sense. Like, what is bigger, bolder baking? A lot of people, you know, the term bold means to take chances, to take risks to be, you know, fearless, and that's the tagline for the book, my fearless approach to baking anytime, anywhere. Uh, it's just about, you know, my recipes are accessible. I, I work very hard. I've been doing this for such a long time that I work very hard at making um, the recipes accessible and readable. And, you know, in the book, there's a 100-plus recipes made with everyday kitchen staples. Um, recipes don't have more than 10 instructions. They've less than 10 ingredients. So we really try and kind of keep it straight to the point and um, to get you, um, wherever you are, anyone baking with confidence, anytime, anywhere. Well, you know, we get a lot of cookbooks. This is the first one. I've had lots of them arranged by ingredients, but yours, your book is arranged by the uh, equipment. <laughs> is that how you say yeah. I mean, So just, we found... Yeah, you start Sorry, out with a wooden spoon and bowl, and you move on to pots and pans. And and my favorite one is no oven needed. <laughs> yeah, we found that like with our so we've got five million fans around the world who are part of the bowl baking community, and we found that one thing that was getting in their way was uh, pieces of equipment that in lots of co- uh, countries and lots of people don't know this that people don't, an oven is not a common piece of equipment in a kitchen. So there's a lot of people out there who want to bake but have no access to an oven and maybe they only have a hot plate. That's why we included uh, pots and pans, desserts, and all different types that can be made um, in a pot and pan. And uh, like you said, the first chapter is wooden spoon and bowl, which means you don't need a hand mixer, you don't need an electric stand mixer. You can do all of these recipes. Uh, by hand, there's lots of different cookies, crisps, and crumble, and you don't need any special equipment. And we found that by doing it this way with our audience, and also, like you mentioned, a chapter with no oven needed, it really resonated with our audience, and it was taking away a roadblock that they had from baking. And that's what we really try and do. We focus on making it accessible and, and breaking down those barriers so everybody can bake. Yeah, no, I mean, I have just acquired a, um, a mortar cooker, and uh, I, I have read the directions, and I have not understood a word of what to do. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is as far removed from mortar cooking as can be, right? Yeah, so, well, so this is the thing, is that, you know, you don't, like, you don't necessarily need an oven. There's... Um, there's a lot of recipes in my book that maybe are started in the sto- on, on the stovetop and finished in the freezer or finished in the fridge. Lots of them are just um, set or they don't need, you know, some of them are made in a frying pan like bananas, uh, bourbon bananas flambe and um, eggy bread, which is kind of similar to a French toast. So it really just makes it easy for everybody because... You know, not everybody has a big kitchen. Some people are living in dormitories. Some people that we've heard from are living in facilities and maybe are single and they don't want a lot of waste and they want to keep it just kind of, you know, they want to make something new every so often, but like to have it manageable. Now, Gemma, in your, in your language, a microwave is not an oven. It's a microwave. It's a microwave. <laughs> am, am, I, am, I spe- am I saying it right? Yes. I think, is it here a microwave oven? Is that what they call it in the States? Well, they just call them, yeah, I think, I think that the normal 
language would be microwave oven. That's probably what my sister would even say. Yeah, I think so. And she's kind of a, a master of the microwave. She makes cakes. She makes angel food cakes. In her microwave. But in, in the terminology that we're using here for bigger, bolder baking, a microwave is a microwave. An oven is an oven, and they're different. Exactly. So, like, I'm just talking about your basic, and uh, you know, hundred dollar, you know, standard kitchen microwave. And uh, actually, that just that you mentioned there, Peter. The um, in the book, there are a few recipes for microwave cakes because um, these are some of my fan favorites in with uh, tens of millions of views online. So we had to include them in the book and recipes like making a brownie in a mug, making a little funfetti cake in a mug. And they just really resonate with the audience, um, whether you are maybe young and not allowed to use the oven and you want to make a cake or you're single, you want a single serving cake, you don't want any leftovers, maybe you're calorie counting, things like that. And we found that they're just such a big hit. So we had to include a few in the book. Now, I, when I was in the Boy Scouts, which is a very, very long time ago, <laughs> when we went off to camp, one one of the camp projects was to was to build a biscuit tin oven. Oh my gosh! Now, I now think you, I don't have heard of that. And and you actually put the wood, you light a wood fire, you put it under the under the uh, biscuit box. The biscuit box is covered in clay to insulate oh it, God. and then you make and then you make a cake. Make a cake. Oh my. Gosh. <laughs> it's, it's silly the things Boy Scouts do. Yeah, I mean, you certainly, that's very valuable experience and knowledge for you today. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very, very important to know, very important to know how to use a biscuit box. You can't even get a biscuit box anymore. No, you can't. I have a few, but they came from Ireland. You can't buy them anymore. Um, the, the, that's exactly it. It's an alternative way to do something, you know, so you still get to enjoy uh, freshly homemade cake from scratch, but you know you did it without the means of an oven, which is awesome, and that's and that's really what we focus on. Let's, you know, let's, you, let's, you have stories about some of the uh, situations that you have uh, worked in. Um, tell our readers about some of them. I mean, you, some of the, talk about basic. One place you were working, and you had what two hot plates and something else. Yeah, so um, a lot. The book is a collection of recipes from my travels as a young child from Ireland through my career as a pastry chef. And in the book, I write about, I tell the stories of, um, like, for instance, like what you just mentioned. I had a catering business in San Francisco, and I had to cater breakfast for a hundred plus engineers, but I did it in their office with no kitchen at all. So <laughs> I had. Two hot plates going. I had toaster ovens going. Um, you know, the microwave was also going, and it was it was really really tricky. But you know, uh, uh, I, I I got down to a fine art where I knew you couldn't have the hot plates on at the same time as the toaster oven, or the fuse would blow. You know, so I really it was a balancing act. But I, I became really good at um, whipping up like freshly made homemade breakfasts. And actually, some of the breakfast recipes are in the book. Are um, with, with you know with very little equipment and very and very little to hand and you know it's it's, it's a little bit of like um, out of necessity came a lot of my recipes. Yes. Well, you know, I mean, I I appreciate this because um, I mean, I have never in my life had what people would call a good kitchen or state of the art anything. You know, I've always roughed it. I remember cooking. Uh, roasting a pig for like a, a hundred people, you know. You didn't, you didn't do that in your kitchen. No, it was in Indiana, and, then, and we had a cabin and an outhouse, and that was it. <laughs> oh my god! Oh yeah, and so and, um, and even in our current house, I mean, it's ancient. The uh, house is old, and so is the kitchen. But we used to do a uh, Christmas day. Uh, open house reception with tons of food. For, uh, it started hitting 200 about the time we abandoned it without any of the special um, equipment, really. And uh, yeah. you can yeah. do it. You can do it. and it, it, It's possible, yeah. And this book ought to go over well in New York where everybody's kitchen is minuscule. Yeah, absolutely. And also, the the 
I wanted to try and make sure it was a collection of recipes that could be made every day and then also special occasions. So if you're looking for something on a Monday night or you have a dinner party on Saturday, there's a little bit of everything uh, in the book to kind of cover all occasions. Right. Now, you you actually have, um, I was surprised that you don't come down in favor of, of um, any particular kind of, uh, well, not unsalted, but you, you use salted butter no matter what, right? Yes, I do. I always have done my whole life, and I... Irish never, butter, which is the best. Irish, yeah. Irish Kerry Gold is absolutely is the best, but if you can get it and if you can afford to put that in your baking every day, then more right. power to you. But, uh, yeah, it's. Um, it, I always do salted butter. Salt is such an important ingredient in baking, and a lot of people know it as a seasoning for savory food, but it is equally as important as a seasoning for sweet food. What it does is it doesn't make things salty, but it brings out and enhances the flavor of the other ingredients. So you, surprisingly said that, you surprisingly said that vanilla does the same thing, even if you don't yes. want a vanilla flavor. I didn't know that after all these yeah, years. Yeah, absolutely. Know that. And, and vanilla and, and salt love each other. So okay. they're really, they work in harmony together, yeah. Now, um, you have a list of substitutions, and I was going down the list, and... and I was real pleased to see that, that uh, there's no substitute for yeast. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, well, I kind of, there's, I have, oh, not even a handful. I have around two or so recipes in the book with yeast, and um, I kind of, you know, those are uh, yeasted doughs that I think they're like cinnamon rolls where you really, like, I think it's for that all, like, kind of, traditional, authentic flavor. I think a yeast is cinnamon roll that people are used to. So I, I don't have a substitute for that. Now, I'm, we talked before we came on that I'm anxious to test your pavlova recipe because it's not simple. It was simple for me using the same recipe in, in when we lived in Australia. But by the time we were in the States, it doesn't work. And... and uh, my Australian friend figured out that it was a matter of, of uh, humidity, and uh, she figured uh, she fiddled with the temperatures uh, to get it to come out right. It's not straightforward, but you have all the right ingredients. I mean, it's filled with um, it has whipped cream and it has kiwi, strawberries, and um, passion fruit. Otherwise, in my book, it's not a pavlova. That assumes, of course, that you can you can buy any of these exotic fruits. I I thought once upon a time you had reached a conclusion that the problem here was our eggs are so much bigger, so the egg whites were bigger. No, so I mean, that unbalanced you can the do recipe. That by weight. You can, okay. Yeah, well, yeah a sure. lot of times we would do that by weight because you'd also weigh your sugar. So for, for pavlova it would kind of be standard for a baker to weigh their egg whites and then weigh their sugar. It's just it's a little bit easier, and, and then you don't make that mistake of um, like have, using really big or really small egg whites. You have some very um, some star recipes here, the things that really made you kind of famous, one of them being your famous red velvet pancakes with cream cheese frosting. Tell us about those. So those are a recipe that I used to make uh, when I had my catering business in San Francisco. And um, it was one day, you know, I really wanted to make my breakfast stand out. I was only there a few days a week, and I wanted to make sure that Jenna's breakfast were the best breakfast. So one day I went in and I made red velvet pancakes and cream cheese frosting, and the guys in the office just went bananas. They are, they are, they, they taste just like the cake. They have the frosting, the, co- the frosting, the, the whipped cream cheese, uh, to, to complement it and then some maple syrup on top. And honestly, it's, it's the best way you can eat cake for your breakfast. It's, they're just, I would put them high, high, high on your baking list. <laughs> I, I looked, I looked at the tiramisu recipe and just, listeners, just, just to give you an idea that Gemma's kind, kind of thorough. When, when you're put, when, when she's putting her angel food fingers in the liquid, she said, "Don't leave them in there too long because they get yeah. soggy." Yeah, well, yep. it really actually it depends. I mean, I used to make a killer tiramisu, and it really depends on um, getting the right. If you're not going to make your own 
um, uh, fingers uh, to actually get the right brand. I mean, they have yeah, to be yeah. pretty sturdy. I mean, not flimsy, foamy kinds of things. Yeah, you know, sometimes that's trial and error. I use a particular brand that are like little uh, finger sponges, so they soak up liquid really fast. And there's one thing that, um, you know, terms do is such a lovely dessert, but there's one thing that really personally puts me off it, and if you guess, that's if you get a soggy tiramisu and it feels like maybe it was made the day before. So that's why I always say just err on the side of caution with dipping your fingers. Right. Now, um, you have a thing about baking pans, about the one that your mother always used, right? Yeah. You know, we had, Peter's mother had a particular pan for Yorkshire pudding, and, and, and if you didn't use it, the Yorkshire pudding wouldn't come out right. <laughs> <laughs> but then she went to muffin tins and he lost faith. Oh, yeah, I lost. I, lost, I, lost, I, wanted, yeah. I wanted to find my mother. She wouldn't, she, she wouldn't, she wouldn't allow it. But, but she, she made Yorkshire puddings the Lancashire way in, in, yeah. in bun tins and it's just not, it's just not right. It's, it's total, total, I, yeah. it's, sac- it's sacrilege is what it is. I, I would agree. I would agree with that. Some things are just are, are better are better just left alone. The um, the recipe in the book that you're referring to is my apple crumble, and you can actually see the dish in the photography. There's this very lovely old retro, uh, extremely 80s Pyrex kind of a dish, and uh-huh. that's what my mom used to make our crumbles in when we were young for the whole entire family and uh, when I was shooting the book I went home to Ireland and I asked her could I borrow it for the book and uh-huh. I still have it and I have no intention on giving it back <laughs> well now you, know, you introduced a subject I was going to broach and that is that uh, um, I mean I, I don't know who did the photography um, but the photographer the uh, styling of, of the photos is wonderful and you bring out all these um, vintage or retro or whatever um, utensils and dishes and, and so forth, which is a, a treat into itself, just strolling through the book and looking at this. And I, I saw these, I, I can't get past these measuring spoons. What are they? Where did they come oh, from? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, I, um, so, you know, a lot of work went into the photography and the styling. And I worked with a stylist here in Los Angeles called Kate, Kate Martindale, and she's really an amazing, amazing stylist. And she styles the food and the props for my entire book. The spoons are spoons that are kind of iconic to Bigger Boulder Baking. I've been using them ever since we started the show. And um, they are they are kind of copper underneath. They're, they're, they're places. Yeah, they're so right. after all these years, the copper underneath is starting to come through. So... They're like they're they've really got this lovely worn vintagey look about them. They're wonderful. They're just great. Well, Thank you. I think that um, the, the book has it actually. I am not a baker. You probably guessed that already. <laughs> but um, it, 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 it's the kind of book that's going to give everybody courage to think that they could actually bake these wonderful recipes that you have in your book. So we're all going to be bigger so. and bolder. Probably bigger as well. <laughs> Probably bigger. Yeah, we're all in this together. You might get a little bit bigger, but you won't be alone. <laughs> well, thank you. It's so nice meeting you, Gemma Stafford. Again, listeners, the, the book is Bigger, Bolder Baking, A Fearless Approach to Baking Anytime, Anywhere. Thank you so much. Lovely to talk to you guys. Thank you. Okay, listeners, that's all for on the, on the menu radio for Except this week. Be sure that we wish happy holidays to oh, all sure, our sure, Jewish sure, listeners. Oh, sure, 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 absolutely, no question about that. And between between now and next program, it's probably going to be officially fall too. Uh-huh. Uh, that's our boo. <laughs> and there's the there's the doorbell, so I better close up the program. <laughs>